another episode of Future Nation. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Where we speak with some of today's brightest innovators and explore the future of disruptive innovation. Let's go. Here's your host, Daniel Callow. Hi, and welcome to Future Nation. I am your host, Daniel Callow. Today, I will be speaking with Justin Dry. Justin's entrepreneurial journey began when he was just 10 years old, where he provided lawn mowing and car wash services for his neighborhood. From there, he progressed through various ventures until he realized his true passion for wine, where he then spent his university years studying winemaking. It was while shopping for premium wine that Justin saw a market opportunity to sell wine without all the BS and bow ties. So he set himself on a mission to build a brand that spoke the language of wine to the everyday person. And after a few iterations, Vino Mofo was born, a brand that is true to its core and removed the intimidation factor that was traditionally associated with selling premium wines. Today, Justin is the CEO and co-founder of Vino Mofo, an e-commerce wine retailer that employs over 130 people in Australia, New Zealand and Singapore and is changing the way people perceive and engage with premium wines. I introduce to you Justin Dry. Hello Justin and thank you very much for taking the time to be on Future Nation today. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, yeah, tell us a bit about your history. My history, okay. So I started, I guess, my first business when I was really young. I was an entrepreneur since I was a kid. Yeah. Grew up in a family that was entrepreneurial, had some highs and lows through that journey. So I saw the ups and downs yeah. of a father that was an entrepreneur. We're always talking about business. So I guess it was always a topic of conversation and hence something that I thought about a lot. So I started my first business when I was like 10. Wow. That was a lawn mowing and car washing business. And then I hired my first employee at 10 and a half. That was my cousin. He'll be forever known as Lazy Ben because he was more interested in like buying lollies at the shops than actually doing the work. He was also the first person I fired at 10 and a half. You know, I always let people know that he did come to my wedding. So we're still mates. Yeah. Um, he's, uh, he's still very close, but he just was not the right first choice as an employee. Uh, I did my second business was Christmas trees, buying Christmas trees and selling them pre-Christmas buying from a Christmas tree farm and then putting a mark up. Learned some lessons early on that, doubled down too early, was left with a bit of Christmas tree stock. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I discovered wine, which is obviously a theme that's continued to this day. Um, yeah. In my teenage years, a couple of my family members, a couple of uncles were interested in wine. They worked in the industry yeah. as a viticulturist and one more on the science side. And they kind of force fed me blind tastings when I was growing up at uh, family functions, which kind of piqued my interest. You know, yeah. like picking vintage and variety and region, which was extremely hard when you never drunk wine before, but yeah. they kind of guided me through it and kind of started the interest. Yeah. Uh, and then it, I, I got so passionate about it, I ended up studying it at uni, so much so that I, you know, instead of an 18th birthday and, you know, a keg party and all the costs that go along with that, I cancelled that and put it into one bottle of wine. Oh, uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, from there, you know, did lots of other things, but, you know, the short version is, uh, I studied at uni, worked in the industry, and then about 23 decided that it might be a passion or profession. So played around, became a stockbroker yep. during the tech boom. I was also there during the tech crash. So looked like a hero, then didn't look very good. Um, then went into property development and built a whole bunch of houses, um, which was really fun, made a bit of money. 
lost that money backing a family member going guarantor. So highs and lows continued through my 20s. Uh, got back into wine in my early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, and did three businesses in that space online before launching Vino Mofo in 2011. Yeah. And the rest is, I say, is history. Wow. What a past. Yeah. There's a lot of things going on and a lot of different projects. And I've had some like amazing highs and then some incredible lows. But, you know, I don't think anyone who's done anything like interesting has had a smooth path. So Vino Mofo, what a cool name. Tell us, how did Vino Mofo, the name, come about? Yeah, well, it was actually going to be called Vino Mojo and two days out from launch. So we'd done all like the social pages. We'd done like a pre-launch email drive sign-up thing. Uh, We'd done all the design and literally two days out from launch. So it was on the Friday and we're launching on the Sunday. Yeah. We get a legal letter, a cease and desist. It's a trademark thing. It's like looked really official. Like we we didn't get many of those in that day. And we opened it up and it was like someone who owned Mojo Wines, which was a big public company and they owned one of these brands called Mojo Wines. We were looking at uh, calling ourselves Vino Mojo. Yeah. It was a different category. And so it wasn't really an issue when we called the solicitor in terms of eventual win, yeah. but short-term was a major issue because they had already had a history of trading, yep. which means that they would be able to get an injunction to stop us launching yeah. for enough time for the court to hear the case. Right. So basically, we're like, oh, God. So our very cheap solicitor said to us, change your name. <laughs> and we're like, oh, God. Two days out. Two days oh. out. But we knew that, you know, there's – Timing's so important when you're launching a, a new business and there's a time for ideas and we knew it was the time in the market to launch this business. So we did what we always do when we have these issues. We opened a couple of bottles of wine, started <laughs> drinking and um, and trying to kind of come up with other ideas as to like what this name could be. We wanted something that was so similar that our designer didn't have to change very much and so similar that the people that had pre-signed up weren't like, oh, what the hell is this company? Um, it was more like, so we're, go- we're trying to change like a single letter yep. um, and that's about it. So we were like, you know, Vino Moto, Vino Modo, and then um, like a bottle in and a couple, <laughs> a couple of hours later, um, I eventually said, why don't we call it Vino Mofo for the mother that yep. are trying to steal our mojo. Yeah. And that's Vino Mofo. Wow. Yeah. Is that the reason? That's yep. awesome. Love it. And we laughed and we didn't actually think we would do that seriously when we first kind of played with the idea. However, we kept coming back to it and we thought it was funny and we yep. thought it so suited our brand and the brand for the three previous businesses, was, which was all about no bow ties and BS. Yep. Let's be super passionate about wine but let's remove this intimidation factor around it. So let's speak in a different way, speak the language that we like to speak in about wine. And so we're like, well, the brand name kind of suits that because if you're offended by the brand name, then you're probably not our people anyway. Um, And we can always change it when we win. So yeah. we went with Vino Mofo and the company just took off. So, and then the people signing up love the name. They yeah. love the story because we put it on the site, like the reason why we chose that name. Yeah. So they found that really funny. Um, they connected with it. They loved the way we talked about wine. And by the time we won the case, which we didn't actually fight the case, we just won it um, yeah. through lack of action because we were going to win it. Yeah. Um, by the time the name was ours and available again, it was like, well, It's such a strong brand now. We've got so many mofos. They're calling themselves mofos, so let's stick with it. Wow. I love that story. 
So Vino Mofo, what year was it founded? Uh, 2011, it was off the back of um, three other businesses. Yeah. Um, one was like Quaff, which was 2006, seven. Yeah. We had, uh, what was next? Uh, Road to Vino, uh, which is an online wine travel show. And then the third one was like a check-in app. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you remember like uh, Go Waller and Foursquare. But oh, yeah. now what Facebook does with check-ins. Yeah. Um, we built a wine checking app where people could travel around to different wineries, wine regions, and check in for special deals. Yeah. And that was so each one, like Quaff was about community, Road to Vino was about building our network of wine producers, and we got to know all the rock stars and legends of the industry. Yeah. And then the checking app kind of brought them together oh, um, yeah. and also introduced the deal kind of side of things, which yeah. is what Vino Mofo launched as. It was like a wine deal site, but focused on kind of uh, the uh, premium to super premium wines and small batch and interesting producers. But deals. Yeah. So that's how that kind of all rolled into the right model eventually, even though we thought each model before was perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At the time, um, it wasn't. And each one kind of led to the next stage, next model, and eventually Vino Mofo brought them together and um, took off. Yeah. So Vino Mofo is very much a brand built around communities. Is that correct? Absolutely. And those communities are what you call premium to super premium categories? Of wine, yep. Uh, those people that focus on the kind of small to medium producers, yeah. adventurous in their choices, but very interested in wine. So they're looking for premium to super premium wines, not kind of floor stock, bargain basement kind of stuff. It's more yeah. for people that are actually actively engaged in the space. Yeah, awesome. Let's talk a little bit about building communities. I'm sure it's a part of many brand strategies out there. How does one go about building a community that's tight knit? And what are the challenges? Uh, it's probably a pretty big discussion, <laughs> that one. But um, for us, yeah, it was about, um, and I really don't like the word authentic, but it was about being who we were. Yeah. And um, it was the way we spoke about wines that connected us with our audience. So I'd studied wine and I knew a fair bit of about wine for my age. Yeah. And so like when I was, uh, the kind of the birth of one of the ideas or concepts or pillars of this brand happened to me when I was about 25, 26, I'd studied wine at uni. I'd grown up in it. My ancestors had planted some of the first vines in the broth. So I lived and breathed this thing. So for a 25, 26-year-old, I knew a fair bit about wine. Yeah. I was walking into independent wine stores, which is where you get the more interesting kind of wines as opposed to the big kind of chains. Uh, So when you're a bit wine nerdy, that's where you kind of shop. And so I was walking into these independents looking for wines from around the world that were more interesting than standard kind of wines available on the floor. And, uh, you know, looking whether it's Barolo or Barbarescos or Burgundies or, you know, just something weird and wonderful. And when I was walking into these stores, there was always these like old guys with rosy cheeks and like shirts and bow ties and they got their entire self-worth and importance by making other people feel small about their knowledge of wine. So it was really intimidating. The world's changed a fair bit since then, but when we were kind of launching the businesses, it was still terrible in that way. And so we were like, this is rubbish. Like if I feel intimidated walking into a wine store, and I know a fair bit for my age, you imagine how everyone else feels? And so that kind of, let's remove the bow ties and BS and let's just talk about wine in a real way. You know, none of that ridiculous language that these kind of so-called experts kind of speak in and let's just keep it real but passionate because we love wine we're like super nerdy about it but don't be that guy you know yeah um so that's kind of one of the birth and 
because we built the brand that way and with those beliefs and spoke to that, we were very authentic, to use yeah. that term, and it was very real. We weren't making it up. This was who we were and what we wanted in a business, and this is the way we wanted to speak and talk about one. Um, so that I think is it, it was that realness um, and that authenticity, to use that word, to who we were. And then the other part of the equation for us was building it from the ground up. Like one-on-one to one-on-five to one-on-fifty to one-on-one-hundred, we held events. We got to know our community. The first thousand people are foundation members of Venomofo. Um, they st- they're still around today. Yeah. Um, and it was about getting to know them in person. And we're an online business, but we held lots of tasting and lots of events to get to know them. Right. And I think it's super important when you're starting out to, one, be real and be who you are and yep. speak to that and make sure it's an authentic brand. And then two, to build it from the ground up, grassroots, get to know your community and let referrals drive the growth. Yep, definitely. So, I mean, that's interesting. You say you're an online business, but yet you did all these events face-to-face. And I suppose that goes against what most people believe to get success online is all about. A lot of people think that it's online, you know, let's just sit in our office, we'll do an awesome marketing campaign and we'll just let it perpetuate itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's super important to connect. And there's ways to connect online. There's different tools, um, you know, the the rise of audio and video and those things that can make the connection so much stronger than it's ever been yeah. online and gives you the ability to scale much faster. But nothing really compares to one-on-one, like in-person, real-life connection. Yeah. Um, and it's getting the world's getting better at replicating that. Yeah. But there is still something super important and powerful about that. Yeah. The question then comes in: How do you scale? Yeah. How do you scale that? And then you use the tools that are available to do it in the best way you possibly can. Yeah. But I still think events and connection are super important. So in those early days, you're essentially building evangelists for your brand. 100%. And if you look at all the big tech companies of today, I mean, that's how they started. It's how the really super fast growth companies generally start. It's not all of them, obviously, because there's some tech plays that didn't need those early kind of directly connected um, ambassadors. But for our business and a lot of businesses in this space um, right now, the traction early and the super fast growth was from referral. Yeah. And it's the cheapest yeah. way to build scale quickly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you mentioned those foundation members. So tell me a bit about these foundation members. So when we first launched the business, we wanted to recognize the people that came on board earlier and committed to and contributed to our community. Yeah. And so we created these foundation members. They um, got a few extra benefits. They got a little key ring. It's so cool. Like I have still to this day, you know, more than eight years later, I have people tap me on the shoulder and I know quite a few of them and show me the key ring that we first <laughs> gave them, you know, and that it was numbered like I was number 27. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they still shut and they still hold it and they hold it with such pride. It's just incredible. Um, really, really amazing. And, you know, we'd send our early members in each of the markets too. And I guess our most committed mofos, you know, like Christmas, handwritten Christmas cards from all the team. And it takes a tremendous amount of time yes. and energy, but it is so worth it. Like when we launched in Singapore a few years ago, a year later, just after that Christmas, I was walking through the markets in Singapore around a couple of events we were doing. I got tapped on the shoulder again and it was a guy that just wanted to thank me for how much love and support we'd showed his parents who were a bit older and they had the handwritten Christmas card that we'd sent them. I'd sent <laughs> them, I'd written to say thank you so much for the support, et cetera, et cetera, and made very personal to them. Yep. They had it up on their fridge. 
and they told everyone <laughs> that came to their house about this card and receiving this letter from the CEO and founder of Vino Mofo Justin and how personalized it was. Yeah. And it like these things make a difference. Yeah. And I think people kind of go away from these things or think that they're not possible because they're not tremendously scalable. Yeah. But I think how powerful are the things that aren't seen as scalable when you deliver them? Yeah, it's a part of the scaling strategy. I Absolutely. I think it is, yeah. Those ambassadors uh, pushing your brand and talking in positive light. Yeah, 100%. All it took was a card. Yeah, just <laughs> quite a few. <laughs> quite a few. <laughs> quite a few and a, and a sore wrist from writing. Yeah. But, um, but, it was, but it's important and, and I look at it in the same way. We've just recently done a customer survey which went out to our audience and it wasn't incentivized. I just wanted real answers. The first one was like a, a an MPS kind of score thing just to get a benchmark. Yeah. Um, and then the following nine questions, because I wanted to keep it short, were free text. What do you love about us? What don't you love about us? That type of question. Yeah. And free text answers, we had like five and a half, six thousand res- uh, responses. Nine out of the 10 questions were free text. <laughs> so we are talking like 30, whatever, more than that, 45,000 answers in free text. Wow. So what did I do? I spent time and I went through the first probably 20% of them myself personally. And like my eyes have gone weird because of it. <laughs> but I wanted to read and feel exactly what people meant and wanted to say um, about being a mofo because that's how important it is to us to focus so much on the customer. And so it was fascinating. So then I did the first kind of probably 20% of that yeah. um, over a couple of weeks because I wanted to kind of live and breathe it. And then we've got the team to do the rest. It's super powerful. The lessons I've learned are amazing. Yeah. It ingrains it in you and it makes it feel like, I suppose, your customers are talking to you directly. Yeah, Absolutely. And I've got a you know a team of over a hundred people. Uh, we're in three countries. I've got my CEO responsibilities, and people are like can't believe that I would spend that amount of time on the response. But I'm like, that's what the business is. Yeah, there are there are mofos. That, yeah. That's what makes all of this possible. So if I have an opportunity to go deep and learn, yeah, about what they love and what they don't, and how we can improve their lives, I'm going to do it. Yeah, that's awesome. If you could give one piece of advice to someone that is building a strong brand community, what would it be? One piece would be, I mean, just be real to yourselves and like who you are, what is driving you to be in this space, business, keep true to that. I think it's probably the most important. It's going to be hard. Like everything is so much harder and it ends up looking nothing like what you ever imagined when you start. So you need to be real and passionate and want to do this when it gets hard because it's going to. So I'd probably just be real. Let's talk a little bit about the disruption here. Vino Mofo has come along and disrupted the wine industry. It's disrupted retail. Where do you see that Vino Mofo has made the biggest disruption? I think we introduced the idea in our space of removing all the middlemen. Yeah. The wine industry globally is like super complicated and Australia is like in the middle kind of level, like America's like ridiculously complicated and there's a lot of people that sit between producer and end consumer yeah and so what we did was we removed those layers we went direct to small to medium and interesting producers and we built the audience direct to the consumer so we got rid of wholesalers and distributors which meant that margin that was saved was passed on to the consumer yeah awesome so in doing so, obviously, it makes the whole process more efficient and that's how you're able to be more competitive with pricing. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when we looked at 
the other markets around the world once we'd launched in Australia, Singapore was one of the next ones. That had so many layers and so many kind of people taking margin in the middle. And the yeah. reason I eventually launched in Singapore was I was spending time there and in Hong Kong and other potential markets. And when I was buying wine, <laughs> the cost of wine was so ridiculous that I, I just could not believe it. So I investigated as to why. And yeah. the reality was there was there was exporters. So there was a producer, yeah. potentially an agent in the country of origin. Then there was exporters. Then in Singapore, there was importers. Then there was wholesalers, distributors, and retailers before it got to the consumer. Wow. That is a lot of layers. Yeah. So what we did was we buy direct from producers, like from all over the world, not just Australia. Like we go to France and Italy and Spain and South America and South Africa and buy containers. Like we focus directly on, you know, a few products that we love, hence the curation of the yeah. kind of wine list. Um, and we buy direct and in great volume, yeah. which means our prices are really good. Then we skip every single one of those middlemen and deliver straight to consumer. So in Singapore, as we did in Australia, the prices are remarkable. And the people that were at one point taking all those margins don't like us very much. No, but the consumers love us. <laughs> yes. And how's that challenge been? I mean, obviously, when you disrupt, you disrupt. And has there been backlash in Singapore? Has there been any legal fights or anything like that in relation? Yeah, look, there's been uh, backlash since day one. We've had big competitors try and destroy us in a whole range of different ways. Wow. Got to be careful what you say in these <laughs> circumstances. But to say that it's been a challenging landscape would be underestimating what that has been over the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've had people threaten the people that supplied us to not stock their wines anymore if wow. they continue to deal with us just to make it hard. We've had them try and poach people on our team We've had so many different things wow. and, you know, and we've had people talk untruths about yeah. us in order to try and ruin reputation just because we're the challenger. Yeah. We're disrupting the landscape. We're disrupting their space and their business and most people aren't going to go down without a fight. <laughs> of course not. I mean, it's their livelihood and they've been doing it that way their whole lives and exactly. it's hard for them to sort of innovate themselves and and compete in the way that you're competing so yeah but as the landscape changes you yeah, have to you have to you either innovate yeah. or you die that's it so what's next for vino mofo as far as the disruption goes and in industries i mean vertical markets horizontal markets look i think there's a lot of things currently in discussions we're always looking ways that we would disrupt ourselves yeah um it's it's a way of thinking that i think is incredibly important because yeah you don't want to be the disruptor that turns into the big guy that then gets disrupted. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. a really yeah. average cycle to be involved in. <laughs> so what we're always thinking about is how would we disrupt ourselves? So there's one, there's that. Yep. Um, and so constantly looking at how we can evolve. Two, there's other markets, obviously, definitely in conversation about that. You know, the US is one that we've been talking about for a little bit. And there's some really good opportunities there. Um, there's some great partners that we're talking to and we're in deep discussions about that. So, yep. so markets are definitely something that we're looking at. As far as other verticals, in one of our kind of earlier years, we moved into food. And found it such a distraction that we went back very quickly yeah. <laughs> to focusing on what we do really, really well and then expanding that globally because we think it's such a great model and such a good brand, such a good story to go into other markets and so needed yeah. that we'd rather really focus on what we do well and take that global as yeah. opposed to trying to find other things to sell to our community. Yeah, okay. 
And you mentioned the US markets and I know that Vino Mofo has done a deal with Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah, that was cool. Um, so I've known Gary for like a decade and he was once in the wine industry. So he grew up in the wine industry yeah. working for his dad, um, Sasha, uh, and his old man owned a wine store in New Jersey. Yep. Uh, so Gary grew up, you know, working there. Yep. And then um, when he was, I think, uh, what year was that? That would have been like ninety, late 90s or something. I think he started kind of being more heavily involved in the business strategically and took it online. And he started doing these videos called Wine Library TV. And at the same time, Andre and I were um, very similar times. He was a bit earlier um, doing uh, Quaff TV. So we were both talking about wine in a very different way to a very different audience at similar times. Yeah. And so we kind of heard of him that way because people were referencing us together, like going, oh, love your thing, love your show. Have you seen Gary or vice versa? And so we're like, oh, this is cool. Um, and, and someone else who's doing something really interesting in this space. And so we kind of first heard him that way, first then met him uh, when he came out in about uh, 2010 or thereabouts. Uh, He was coming out with something to do with Wine Australia, had put on some kind of event. And then I think the year later, his business partner now, Trouty, John Troutman, came out for another wine event through Wine Australia. We got chatting and Trouty and I have become really, really good mates um, since then. And the new wine brand that Gary's just launched is with Trouty. And so when they were launching it, Obviously, with Gary's huge kind of numbers of people around the globe, when he launched his wine brand, there were people that were wanting to try it in every country. Wow. <laughs> and so they were like, well, there's a lot of people in Australia, Singapore, and New Zealand that would like it. Justin's operating in those three markets. If there's someone we want to work with, we'd love to work with Justin. So they approached me to represent Empathy Wines in those markets. And yep. of course, we've been looking to do something together for a long, long time. And so this was the opportunity to do it, and I jumped at it. Yeah, what a great relationship and opportunity. There wouldn't be too many people that wouldn't know who Gary V is. No, he's become very big recently, hasn't he? It's it's incredible. When I was there, I was I went to his because uh, we've been dropping in when we go to the states, you know, regularly. And as I said, I've become really good mates with Trouty, and and so when I went this time, and we decided, oh, let's do something together. Dropped in to film some content, and it is phenomenal what he has built. Yeah, Like the scale and reach that he has is just phenomenal. And to see the team work, he works as hard as what you think. Yeah. You know, like that, yeah. that, you know, a lot of people have asked um, since knowing the connection, is he really like that? Yeah. Like, is he that high energy? Does he work that? And the reality is it is. It's exactly who he is. Yeah. It's incredible to see him work. He's yep. just so fast yep. um, and so committed and so, I guess, amazing. Um, so it's, 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 it's really great to watch. Well, there it is again. I mean, the authentic brand. It's exactly as you see, which is how you build brands. Exactly. So a few years back, Vino Mofo had a large investor on board, catch of the day. Tell us a bit about how that went. And I know that eventually you bought back the share. Yeah. So it was in 2012. So shortly after we launched, we were growing super fast. But as I said, we were having all these pressures from other people <laughs> to try and ruin us. Yeah. And so we knew that we needed to scale like super fast to compete because yeah. the pressure they were putting on to producers was because we were a small startup, yeah. growing fast but smaller. So the volume that we were buying didn't compete with some of the bigger players in the market, but we were going to get there. 
and that's what the competitors knew. So they're trying to end us now <laughs> before yeah. we got there. So knowing the pressure that was happening, we needed to get scale really, really quickly so we could get to that point where the producers that we wanted to buy from could tell the other guys to go away because we were buying enough yeah. for them to risk saying that basically. And so the two ways to doing that, obviously raising money or partnering with someone. We looked at both. The money thing was interesting, but the reality was we were growing so quickly that we're getting enough revenue in to do the marketing that we needed to do. So the money was less important to us than a partner. So then we looked at particular partners. We went into due diligence with a large media company, thinking they had the scale to get it in front of enough people to grow super fast. And throughout that due diligence process, we got a call from Catch of the Day uh, founder and their CEO at the time. Yeah. And uh, they wanted to talk about partnering with us and we eventually ended up going with them because they were, you know, the, one of the biggest um, and most successful online players in the country. Yeah. They had like 2 million customers. And at this stage, you know, we were very tiny compared to them. We were like, well, if we can just get 10% of that audience, that would be amazing. That yeah. never works. <laughs> you know, that, that reality never works because the audience has got to be, one, connected to your brand not the parent brand or not a connective brand. Um, And two, the audience has got to be a similar audience. And what we found once we did the deal when sold 70% to catch was that the audiences were very different. So they were more kind of bargain hunter kind of audiences where we were kind of like premium, super premium end of the wine space. So very kind of different, even though our prices were incredible and best in market. It was still a very different audience. Yeah. You know, there was some crossover, but nowhere near what we thought. So I guess about a year in, we were sitting there going, Oh, we thought we were gonna have like a small percentage of something tremendously bigger, yet we hadn't seen the growth, even though we were still growing fast, we hadn't seen the level of growth that we'd hoped and the crossover. So it reached the point where we decided that we'd like to be independent again. Yeah. And so we brought that quite difficult conversation up with the founders, um, but they were great about it and they understood completely. Catch of the Day was started with a couple of brothers in a garage, very similar to our foundation story. So they got it and they understood the the desire to be independent again. Um, yeah. So that conversation progressed, eventually did a deal and we brought ourselves back a year later. Yeah, wow. And it's not without value that you did that. I mean, you would have learned a lot in the whole process and probably learned more about yourself as a company. I think these things you always learn from, uh, you know, we were going into a much bigger company. It was still a disruptor in the market. So that was cool to see what a large disruptor looked like internally. Yeah. To speak to really smart people. They had a lot of smart people within that business. So that was good in the sense of the conversations and learnings that we could get from that group. Yeah. Uh, And then I guess it's always fascinating to go through a big transaction. You know, yeah. it was lots of lawyers, lots of accountants, <laughs> lots of time building out, you know, the due diligence process. And so the learnings are amazing. And so a big deal, smart people, the internal workings of a big disruptor. Yeah. There's a lot of positives that came out of that. Yeah, definitely. Sounds like a roller coaster ride to be on that one. It was. So Vino Mofo has grown considerably since it was founded and you've put together a nice team. I mean, we're here in your Melbourne head office and what an amazing workspace you have here. The vibe when you walk in, it's more akin to something like a cafe than a workspace. You've got wine bottles everywhere. Everyone's got a smile on their face. It really is the buzz that many workplaces strive to get. Tell us, 
you're quite innovative. Your team is very innovative. What do you do for your team to build what you've built? I think culture is one of those things. It's an evolving, ever-changing, hard thing to pin down. There's a couple of things, though, that I think are important to at least driving it in the right direction consistently. Uh, I think your business needs to you know, stand for something. You need to have the why. You need to then have values or what we call a credo tied into that. And I think it needs to be visible. And I think it needs to be communicated regularly. Yeah. Um, you can't over-communicate this, this stuff. As I've learned growing as a leader in business generally, Yeah. over-communicate everything yeah. because it's there's so much going on in everyone's lives that it gets lost you know, in every, in all the complexities. Yeah. So if you've got messages, brands, values that are super important to your business, then over-communicate and put them up on the walls, speak to them in meetings, uh, base the decisions you make on them, you know, just live and breathe it. Yeah. And so I think that's super important. I think um, giving back, which I know has become more of a thing over the last kind of decade, is super important to give them – other areas that they can get value out of that are important to them in their lives, yeah. you know, within a workplace. So our do good program within Vinomofo extends to lots of different areas, but there's a couple of key ones and it gives our team the opportunity to give back and do that as a community and see the results of that. So that's super powerful as well. Yeah. And in innovation, there's always the talk of how do you manage or how do you handle failure? Failure is always a big thing and you can't progress without failure, but it's the necessary evil we have to talk about. And that is, you know, how does Vino Mofo manage that within the teams and how do you encourage people to really put it on the line and take that risk without them feeling like their job's going to be at risk? Yeah, it's an important conversation and you bring up important points. The fear of failure is so huge. Everyone has it. Yeah, And it tends to lead to people staying in their comfort zones and nothing interesting is ever done <laughs> inside the comfort zone. <laughs> yeah. And so I think personally, I think you got to, it's got to start, it starts from the top, absolutely. And then you got to live and breathe what you say, what you say, you know, <laughs> do as I do, no, what, what does I say? But you got to actually live and breathe that culture that doesn't look down upon failure. So yeah. it encourages people to take risks and supports them in it. And so I think for me personally, um, I've been trying myself to learn as much as I can and always challenge myself to step out of the comfort zone. I mean, I've been reading self-help books since I was a kid, you know, and yeah. business books. And I was one of those guys that just read um, madly every book about how I could step outside my comfort zone, how I could do better, how I could take risks, how I could deal with failure. And so I think it's culturally within this business because it started from the top. Yeah. Um, and then in order to encourage people, because naturally they will tend to kind of I don't know, sit within that comfort zone and not take those risks unless they see an example of it and then are supported through it. Yeah. And so supporting through it means that if you're going to say take risks and we'll support you, then support them when they do and they fail. Yeah. You know, it's, there's so many people that talk about take risks, take risks, take risks. We've got to, we've got to fail to learn and, you know, and take the learnings from them and get better. And yet when their team fails, they don't live it. Yeah. They actually do not live that philosophy. And so I think starting from the top and then also following through in what you promise in the sense of take risks and support them when they fail. As long as it's a two-way risk and not a one-way, 
You know, as long as it's one of those decisions that's not one way and it's going to ruin the business, then take the risk and learn from it. And it's super important in a disruptive, innovative company to build a culture that does that. Yeah. So keeping control of that, I suppose, is the challenge because as teams grow, you would probably have people be less tolerant to failure and you don't want that to start happening. So how do you keep control of larger team leads? I think it I think it's in a very similar way with just different people. So I think building it into the DNA, the overcommunication of it, having it visible and having it as part of hiring decisions, weekly communications, you know, events, having it part of that and then part of the DNA and then um the education has to come into the team leads and the support yeah. So it it becomes very easy when the leader is in a small team and believes in it thoroughly to deliver that. But then when you grow and scale, the leader needs to teach, guide, educate the leads. Yeah. That are then delivering that message through on top of all the other things, which is DNA, over-communicate, bring in as part of everything you do. Yeah, awesome. I love the term you use, over-communicate. You can never over-communicate a message. No, I've learned this. I've learned this over time. Like, honestly, it's one of the things that, you know, there's a couple of key learnings through my experience that if I could speak to myself, you know, a decade ago or 20 years ago, even. And one of those is over communicate. Yeah. Over communicate, you know, the important messages because it's everyone has such busy lives and so much going on that the key things, the two or three or four things that you need your team. To know and live and breathe, you need to over-communicate all the bloody time. That's awesome. And then the other one is people are everything. You know, you've yeah. got to hire great people yeah. um, and you've got to remove the people that aren't yeah. um, as quick as you can. And that's tough for most people to do. It is and it's something that takes a long time to learn to do well. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I've never heard anyone say, geez, I, you know, I fired that person too quickly. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's generally the other way. Yeah, that's right. You're in the e-commerce space. It's such an exciting space that it's still the Wild West. No one knows where it's going to be in five or 10 years. Amazon's a big player. What's your opinion on Amazon and where does Vino Mofo sit? Could Vino Mofo potentially get Amazoned? <laughs> Described Amazon. <laughs> Coming into the market and oh. taking considerable market share or disrupting Vino Mofo. I mean, I know you said prior, you always look at ways that you could disrupt yourself is being Amazon one of those? Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting, the Amazon conversation. And I'm not going to share any secrets of, of how to disrupt Venomofo. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Of course not. <laughs> um, I've, I've, I've got a few uh, written somewhere, but forever remain secret to the yeah. external. Um, no, I think uh, Amazon and wine is an interesting thing. So, look, they've never done wine well. Yeah. Um, they're a, they're a, a broad range offering, you know, as broad as you can for uh, minimal margin. Cheapest price is, I guess, their kind of method. And I think with the wine space, it's very, very difficult to do that well. It's such a personal story. It's such a connected story yeah. to producer and it's such a deep and rich story. So in order to kind of deliver that, it means you need expertise, you need history, you need connection too, and that's very hard to do at scale. Yeah. But on the other side of the argument, there's two kind of places within the market I see, particularly the wine space I'm saying. Mass 
yeah. where you're talking about the Amazon style of offering as broad as you can. And you'll see that the bigger kind of retailers in this space in Australia are like that. You know, the supermarkets yeah. uh, have everything. And then on the other side of that is curated, which is what we do. Yeah. So we zone in like and focus on the wines that we love. So we only ever feature about 5% of the wines we taste. It's in the premium to super premium end of the market. Yeah. And we go laser focused on that and we buy in a curated way, which means our volumes are very deep on the ones that we buy. Yeah, okay. So the difference is you've got like the broad range, that most of their kind of scale is through the floor stock, kind of the cheaper end of the market, and then the premium end of the market is over a broad range. Yeah. And so what we've done is picked out our favorites, gone deep, and quite often the wines you can't get through those chains because there's a small to medium size, more interesting producers that quite often don't want to deal with those bigger players. Yeah. And we've zoned in and focused all our buying power on a limited number of those that's ever changing, ever evolving. And so what that allows us to do is buy deeper than even the big guys. So when you look at wines on our site, we would have bought more than anyone. Wow. And so even when you're against the billion-dollar giants, um, our focus and curation on that part of the market with our audience, which is now very large, gives us ability to outbuy anyone. Yeah. Okay. So, you've got the big competitive advantage in that regard because you're laser-focused on small to mid players where they won't normally want to deal with the bigger companies. There's that and there's also the fact that um, the ones that they do feature, they've got, you know, 20, 30,000 SKUs. At any one time, we've got a couple hundred. Yeah. So even though they have scale, they've got scale in different parts of the market and even the scale they do have in our part of the market, yeah. um, because it's spread over so many other producers and wines, our focus allows us to buy more than anyone. Yeah. So they don't have that buying advantage because of scale over us. Yeah. Do you see the curation itself being one of the big competitive advantages that you have? Uh, it is. Our community are adventurous. They want to try new and interesting wines. Yeah. They give us the permission to try all the wines in that particular space and offer our suggestions as to what we think they should be buying. Okay. And so that curation is hugely important. We literally accept 5% of the wines we taste. So we will only sell wines that we love. Yeah. So that curation um, allows us to offer new and interesting wines to an audience that is really adventurous and wants to try these types of wines. Uh, how do you stay sober? <laughs> <laughs> you spit the wine out. <laughs> you spit the wine out. <laughs> so uh, we have tastings every day. So if you didn't spit the wine out, you'd be in trouble. Yeah, definitely. Well, that brings me to my next question. Shiraz or Merlot? Uh, Shiraz for me. (laughs) Yeah, nice. Um, Do you have a particular favourite drop? It's so funny about wine. It's not a particular wine because of that wine. It's the moment in time or the experience I was having drinking it. And that's one of the things that makes wine so wonderful. It's not necessarily the technical details behind that wine. It's everything around it. Yeah. You know, and so I've got a couple of wines that stand out to me. Um, One in particular was a Clarendon Hills Syrah and it was a 1999 and it was one of the first deals we did on Vino Mofo when we launched it. Yeah. 
Um, it was like small cultish producer, really hard to get. Someone had aged the wines in cellars. We got a a, a decent number of them. Uh, we sold it at like half price, which was insane at that yeah. time. It just blew the business up because everyone was like, "Oh my god, this is an incredible hard to get wine." They're selling it at this price. It's got you know ten years on it um, in a perfectly aged cellar. Yeah, and so when they saw it at that price, they're like, "Oh my god, you know it's going." On. So. That wine for me, I was so in love with it, I bought like, I don't know, 10 six-packs and I used that wine for my regular catch-ups with a couple of my best mates. You know, this was back when we're all single and, you know, living in each other's pockets and like <laughs> so we'll, we would like meet each other after work, we'd go to the gym, work out, we'd get something for dinner on the way home and then we'd open some wine. So we undid all the good stuff <laughs> that we did <laughs> in the gym. But um, we did that so regularly but one of the wines that I kept pulling out was this wine, Yeah, this Clarin Hills Syrah. And so it became so connected to my two best mates yep. for so long that it's one of those wines that's got a really special place in my heart. And so I, if I had to choose like a favourite wine, it would be that. Is it the best wine that I've nowhere near the yeah. best wine I've ever tried? And not even particularly in my style of wines that I like, but if I had to choose one, it would be that for those reasons. Yeah, definitely. And it's an interesting point you raise there. It's about all the other things that surround the point in time that you drink that wine that make up your perception of the wine. So Absolutely. Yeah, the experience itself. So, Justin, let's talk a little bit about yourself. You've had a very interesting journey, ups and downs, and right now CEO and co-founder of one of probably the most admired e-commerce wine brands, I'd say, on the planet. Tell us, what do you do with your personal life to keep innovative, keep inspired, keep motivated? I'm a big believer. Thank you, by the way. That was really nice words. Um, <laughs> That's all right. Uh, I am one of those people that believes in kind of processes and reading lots, even though I'm a really slow reader, um, like audio books um, around, you know, personal development and positivity and all those things and business yep. generally. So I've got so many little things that I do that it would take me an hour to tell you all of them. But <laughs> I, I, very quickly, how do I – my daily kind of habits are, you know, uh, I've got up on my bathroom mirror uh, a series of statements and processes that I do every morning yep. um, that get me in the right mind frame. Yep. Um, I exercise when I can in the morning. makes me feel really good. Um, I have uh, cold showers, <laughs> which keeps me like super energized and excited. Wow. Um, it's, it's one of those weird things. Yeah. Um, I do that. <laughs> then I've got a series of cards that I read when I get to work and have my, you know, coffee yep. in the morning. And that's a series of statements and quotes that yep. um, mean a lot to me and get me in the right mind frame. Yeah. One of the ones I've added recently uh, has been around, you know, making my girls proud. Um, and that kind of gets me in the right mind, mind frame to kind yeah. of start the day kind of working super hard and focused on what's important. Yeah. Um, but I've got like 30 cards in that deck. And so I go through those every morning. Yeah. Uh, then I get stuck into work. Uh, then I'll try and do one kind of meditation session. And then at the end of the day, I kind of, uh, when I'm going to bed, I'll uh, think about the things that I'm grateful for. So as a quick wrap up, that's my kind of daily process that gets me in the right mind frame and gets me kind of motivated and excited about the things that I'm trying to do and why I'm doing them. And then in this kind of mind frame of being grateful for yeah. all the things that I do have. Well, that's awesome. That's an awesome way to finish it all off. Definitely. What about a book that you could recommend? What has been one of the books that you've read that has inspired you or made you change the way you saw things? 
So many books that I've read are important to my journey, I guess. And the first one would have been Think and Grow Rich, yeah, which was the first kind of self-helpy type book that I read, you know, business um, lessons in there too. Uh, and when I was like, it was, I think it was the first book I chose to read outside of like school kind of yeah. stuff. And it was when I was like, I don't know, 12 or 13, I think my dad told me about it. And I, that was like super powerful, kind of changed the way I thought about things, you know, like setting big ambitious goals and how to get there. Yeah. Um, it's pretty outdated now. Um to be honest, it's probably was a work for that time, and um, a few updates are probably <laughs> needed, especially um, if you're female and reading that. It could be seen as a little bit offensive, yeah. um, to be honest, and f- uh, fairly so. But the underlying lessons are very powerful there, m- mostly. Uh, that was probably the first one, and then more recently, I read a book by Ray Dalio called Principles. Okay. Um, that's a really good book. And it's just funny that you get different things from different books at different times. You know, like rereading books that you've previously read is like super powerful because yeah. at this stage I'll pull something out of it that I didn't pull out of it earlier. Yeah. So I'm a big believer in kind of going back to the favourites too. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I agree with that. Sometimes, you know, you'll read a whole chapter and swear that you never read it before yeah. because it rings true now because of where you are in your life now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that I've been doing a lot more recently with the explosion of audio again is podcasts. Yeah. Which, you know, it's funnily enough, I'm here <laughs> speaking on one, but yep. um, I listen to podcasts a lot. Yeah. Like, and, you know, in the morning, I listen to one that's more motivational on the yep. way to work, which yep. I forgot in that kind of last spiel. And towards the end of the day or going to sleep, I'll quite often listen to one that's a bit more chilled out yeah. to get me to sleep. So I think podcast is another big part of that and with the speed of my reading which is incredibly slow <laughs> they actually do help yeah podcasts are great for obvious reasons but they add a lot of context to the dialogue and uh, there's a wealth of knowledge out there and uh, i agree it's a great way to learn absolutely all right well that brings us to the end of our episode justin once again thank you very much for taking the time to share with us your experience and history and the story of vino mofo It is my absolute pleasure and thank you for having me. We are always looking for innovative and interesting people to be on our show. If you or someone you know would like to share their experience and be a featured guest on Future Nation, head on over to futurenation.co and click on apply to be a guest. If you like this episode, please subscribe to receive future episodes as they are released. Once again, thank you for listening to Future Nation. Thank you for listening to Future Nation. Hey, no problem, buddy. Head on over to futurenation.co. What for? For show notes and more. Oh, and don't forget to share and subscribe.